Hello and welcome to the Changing Directions Filmmaker podcast series presented by 206.com. Changing Directions is a podcast interview series focused on diverse and emerging filmmakers who are pushing the boundaries of what's possible for women and minorities while creating amazing films. I am your host, Mark Morin, and my guest for this episode is filmmaker Sabrina Doyle. Sabrina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Now, your film, Lorelei, screened virtually as an official selection of the Real Love Film Festival, which is how I was able to watch it recently. Now, the movie tells the story of an ex-con played by Pablo Schreiber, who gets back together with his high school girlfriend, who's played by Jenna Malone. You can probably do a better job of describing the story than how I just did. So would you please do that? And also, where did the idea of the story first come from? Yeah, I've been, um, my latest tagline for the movie that I'm toying with, you can tell me what you think, is I'm calling it a working class fable about a biker, a mermaid and three shades of blue. So that's my kind of tease for the movie, because I think it incorporates, it's very much a sort of gritty drama grounded in a working family's struggles to to, to build a family. But it's also, it also, as you know, because you've seen the film has these fantastical elements. And I think that, and, and, you know, especially it all comes together at the end of the film. So I want to work that into descriptions of, of the film. Um, the idea for the film, you know, as an independent filmmaker, that the first challenge, and especially this is my first feature, I, I have made a lot of shorts before and I went to graduate film school at AFI, made a, made a very ambitious thesis film there, a science fiction set in space. But this is my first full length, feature length film. And to, you know, the biggest challenge, of course, in doing that, or one of the biggest challenges is finding the money. And so the money came together for this film before almost the idea came together. And it kind of, the idea followed the money, which is a reality of the industry. Um, I found this wonderful investor who, who was a retired businessman had always wanted to make a movie in his life, had never done it. And I like this story because it mirrors the story of Lorelei, which is a which is a story about second chances and getting it right later in life, not the first time. And I feel like the story of the making of this film mirrors that. So our, this gentleman who became our executive producer, Arnold Zimmerman, ha, had always wanted to make a film, retired, and in his 70s said, screw it, I'm doing it, and decided that he was going to fund a film, found me via a mutual acquaintance, and we talked. And he, he the subject he wanted to make a film about was, was very dear to him. He had raised four children who were not his biological children. Oh, they wow. were his wife's children, and they never went on to have children of their own. And he said it's the hardest thing he's ever done, and also the most rewarding thing he's ever done. And he felt that the that figure of the stepfather and what that says about masculinity and about modernness sort of Amer- American masculinity had never been seen. He had felt he hadn't seen that in a film and he wanted to see that in a film. So that's what he wanted to, that was kind of the, the germ of the idea that he wanted to make a film about that. And so I, I had to find my way into that story and it took me a while. Those weren't themes that I had been thinking about naturally myself. They weren't sort of themes that I had been exploring in my screenplays that I was writing. And, you know, there were a few things that, you know, and, and obviously I had to make it personal because you have to, you have to, you know, whatever subject you, you sort of end up telling a story about, you have to find your way into that. That's your personal way into that. And so I started thinking about, you know, representations of blue collar families. And, and that was very personal to me. You know, I feel, I came, I come from the working class. My parents, I'm a first generation high school graduate. My dad left school at 14 and sort of worked in construction his whole life um, as a construction worker. And is still working now driving a truck for a construction company. And my family, you know, are sort of all unskilled workers basically. And that was a world, and I, I know, I was very lucky. I kind of, I was able to sort of go to Cambridge University and then work at the BBC as a journalist 
and, and really that all came by a sort of a teacher in my high school who believed in me and kind of gave me books to read and movies to watch and kind of, you know, helped me grow my mind. So I was very lucky that I got that and I was able to sort of get those opportunities. But, you know, I do feel that, um, that representations of working class people, blue collar people in film, you know, sometimes I think that watching them, <laughs> that, that you, it's almost like you, you want to put the, the viewer through as much misery as possible, mm. show them as much hardship as possible. And you're almost treating these people as zoological kind of specimens to be gawped at, pitied, you know, and then that's it. You finish the film, you've done your bit, you've done your sort of armchair <laughs> activism and you walk away. And, and I, you know, I think that films like that don't show the dignity of those characters, the joy of those characters, the resilience of those characters. My characters make bad choices and some people have criticized those choices and, you know, said, oh, this, you know, what, what Dolores does you know, leaving her kids partway through the movie, that makes her unlikable. <laughs> and, you know, again, I will say that I, I think that female characters in film, I want more unlikable female characters in film <laughs> who, who make unlikable choices. You know, that right. women are not sort of, you know, monolithic. They're not saints, they're not mothers, they're, they're complex. They're as, every bit as complex as complex male anti-heroes. And, you know, I think that allowing female characters and people of color in movies and, and anyone else who's sort of been depicted in a more one-dimensional way, that complexity, allowing them that complexity is a sort of important part of moving forward and evolving as an industry and evolving as sort of an industry of storytellers. So that was kind of my, you know, my personal sort of connection to the world of the story and obviously I had to sort of do a lot of research going up to Oregon and I went up for about a year and a half I made constant trips between LA where I'm based right now and, and Oregon to kind of just meet people in those kind the kinds of communities I was going to be filming in to meet people who'd been in prison to meet sort of people who in, in areas that had been sort of blighted by drug problems and underemployment which is a huge issue and and also kind of you know the biker community you know we, we made friends with people in the local biker community and that really just oh, wow. helped helped us on a sort of logistical level because they all came out and supported the movie and the reason we have those amazing biker scenes in the movie is because that came, community came out and supported us in shooting those scenes so I did a ton of research and then I you know I also the theme of fatherhood and you know I thought well this I started writing this four years ago when the world there was a lot of political change in the world you know it back in my back at home in the UK Brexit had just sort of happened or was had been had been voted for in the referendum and I got to thinking about the fact that we you know we're in this sort of I feel that there's an almost form of toxic nostalgia that's kind of taken hold where people think that the past was better and they, they, they're stuck on what we could have been and should have been rather than what we could be and what's right in front of us. And that's really the story of the film, right? Wayland comes out of prison, thinks about what could have been with Dolores, what his life could have been, and actually realizes that he's found his way to where he needs to be. And it's it's not the way he thought it would happen. He, he's not a dad in the way that he thought he would be a dad, but he's nonetheless a dad, right? And, and the children, I think, in the film represent a vision of the future, a hope in the future, and an investment in the future rather than an investment in the past. And, and you know, the, I mean, obviously we have to kind of have respect for the past. Nostal I mean, I'm as nostalgic as anyone else, but I do think we've become somewhat hung up on it at the expense of moving forward. And the film is kind of, uh, the film explores that issue on a familial level. And I think in, in, in doing so, it kind of said, tells us something about 
a different way of, of being a man. I mean, I thought about fatherhood as a kind of, as a way of exploring ideas about the American dream and what the American dream means to a woman and what it means to a man and how he, he the male character Wayland makes space for ultimately in the film for her dreams. And that kind of, right. I, I thought was a lovely ending to the film. And then, you know, I was just greatly inspired just finally um, by Paris, Texas. Cause I was thinking, what are the films about fatherhood to me that are me- really meaningful? And I thought about that film and the way that, you know, you've got a dad who doesn't get it right the first time round and then goes on this road trip and kind of becomes a dad having failed the first time, having failed quite spectacularly the first time. And what that says about sort of resilience, about trying again, about getting things right, not the first, second or third time round, but, you know, many times down the road. And that felt really meaningful to me, you know, especially, and I feel that there's a lot of pressure to to be successful, to get things right, to live up to, to sort of certain expectations. And I think that this sort of softer, gentle, version of an American male felt really appealing to me and felt like it said felt like it could really fit for this moment in history as well. Oh, absolutely. That's a lot of really good insight. Thank you. And especially with Wayland's character, I'm sure we've seen a character like that before at some point, but I can't really think of anybody. So to me, it was a really unique take on who he was as a man, the decisions he made. And then also same thing with Dolores as well is to me, they were very human. You know, I saw people I know in those characters and I saw a life experience in those characters. And it really made for a much more engaging experience for me, even if it wasn't necessarily all happiness and you know fairy tale stories it was a very real and authentic story so that's very interesting that you know that you were able to pull that from all of those different sources so no thank you very much for explaining that now one thing that i love about the movie you mentioned this that it is set and filmed mostly in oregon everything about the state and how you filmed it is just so beautiful and yet you also give the movie a very textured and lived in look to it can you expand a little bit more on you know your decision to film in oregon and why that was important to the story for you? Yeah. So, you know, you when you start writing a screenplay, you write from, I write from a place of instinct often, and then I go back and sort of try and analyze what I've been doing and, and kind of build a structure out of my own initial sort of stream of consciousness. And I, I felt a sort of pull to the Pacific Northwest and thinking about it now, and I think I know where it came from. I think it came from just loving Twin Peaks growing up. David Lynch was the first kind of auteur type filmmaker I ever became aware of. And, and watching Twin Peaks was really transformational for me. The woods and the small towns of the Pacific Northwest really, uh, uh, you know, I think just having watched Twin Peaks and it having been so influential for me as a sort of young person, I felt drawn there and I felt like I wanted to set something there. And it made sense logistically as well, because I'm in California, I can make frequent trips up to Oregon, it's the next day up. And I did that. I took advantage of the fact that it was relatively close. <laughs> California itself is just the length of the entire UK, right? So, in, right, right. But in, in the context of the US, it's relatively close. And for a year and a half before shooting this film, I'd be constantly up and down between LA and Oregon, just looking for locations and finding those places. I mean, so those places we shot in it took us that time to find. We, we'd literally just drive around small town after small town you know you know using google maps and using you know assisted by the by by technology but really also just using our eyes and driving around and sort of stopping anywhere that looked interesting and that looked and then talking to people and you know going into bars going into restaurants got diners going into and even actually knocking on doors we'd just find homes that we thought looked interesting we'd knock on the door and people were so generous and would speak to us and invite us in for <laughs> for, oh, wow. for drinks and kind of it was lovely and we we heard a lot of stories about people's lives and people were excited that we were coming and that we'd be filming there and we got 
the generosity that we that we encountered from people in these small towns and we shot in a number of small towns in and around Portland within about an hour of Portland mostly was incredible and I think the reason we got that texture and that lived in quality was because we shot in places that already had that history mostly you know they, they that you had those kind of sediments of, of people's lives sort of acquired through years of you know of living in these places and that was mostly already there now the house that we shot in was an abandoned house that we drove past and almost missed because it was hidden behind a tree and then spotted and we ended up shooting in that house and it was an abandoned it was an it wasn't an abandoned house i mean it was it was owned by someone but it had been it was empty and it was boarded up and so the, the sort of set dressing in that and the, the lived in quality of that location was entirely down to our uh, amazing production designer Marissa Luguizamon and, and her team and, and they really kind of just the amount of detail that they you know every drawer even the ones we didn't open in the film every drawer was filled with stuff you know oh, wow. and filled with yeah I mean it was important for, for Marissa to kind of just make the characters feel that this was a, a real space so that if they wanted to open a drawer they would find unpaid bills in that drawer and that that would give them something to kind of you know she hid things like that all over the house so that if they wanted that opportunity to kind of just discover something that or you know use that for their character that they would have that and to do that on our sort of our kind of budget is just extraordinary and it, that's really a sort of a testament to her and then you know I remember I had a great teacher at film school Mick Jackson a great director who who always sort of critiqued student films for looking too clean and for not being visceral enough and for you know sometimes I mean sometimes in movies I don't know if you've noticed you can see the crease in the shirt because the, the shirt's been it's <laughs> oh, just yeah. been it's yeah. just been bought they put it on the actor and you can still see the crease from that <laughs> you know again I mean there was conversations with our amazing costume designer Krita where we talked about just making the clothes feel lived in as well like just little kids spill food on their clothes and it doesn't get it, sometimes it doesn't get clean for a few days and right. and that was just kind of especially with a busy single mom you know and, and that texture is something that you kind of you you take in sublime as a viewer you take you take that all in and you notice that sort of stuff I noticed on the internet someone wrote I try not to read what people write about the film <laughs> but, but I do and I shouldn't because I just I don't think it's necessarily healthy but some, someone wrote somewhere I was put off in this film by the fact that everyone looked like they needed a bath <laughs> oh no <laughs> that's kind of but a point and I thought to myself Mick Jackson my film school teacher um, yeah. my uh, old film school he'd be proud I thought this would be a proud moment <laughs> wow that's amazing You'd mentioned before that, you know, we we're talking about the characters a little bit. Both of them played by what I consider to be fantastic actors and Jenna Malone Amazing. and Pablo Schreiber. And both seem just perfect for their characters as well. Tell me how each of them got involved with this project. I mean, I think, you know, you need a lot of resilience to make a movie and you also need a bit of luck. And the three luckiest things that happened to me in this movie were finding the money, finding the producers that we worked with, Kevin Chenoy and Francesca Silvestri, who also produced The Florida Project and came on to oh, this wow. project. And actually, them coming on to this project, I think, allowed us to get the actors that we got because mm. they were more sort of seasoned producers. They'd done The Florida Project, which had had a lot of success. And I think that, that gave the sort of, you know, that gave people other people the confidence to sign on to the movie, including, I think, the actors. They, and then uh, getting the actors was just incredible because they make the film. I mean, you, you, have, you have the screenplay and that's one thing, but when, when an actor makes that real and turns that character on the page into a sort of flesh and blood character, that's an altogether different thing. And I, I could not be more grateful to Pablo and Jenna for, for really going all in in this movie. Um, I mean, Pablo even lived 
in a trailer on the grounds of the property that, that the house that we shot in he bought his trailer up from LA and just lived lived in a trailer and, and just lived out you know in a field for a few weeks and that's you know obviously you know he's not at the stage in his career where he, he needs to do that anymore but he did it for us and I think both of them really responded to the screenplay Jenna is a single mother and really viscerally understood everything Dolores was going through and her frustrations and the hardship, the hardship of, you know, raising, I mean, I think it's something we don't talk about very much. It's, you know, hardship of raising a child, not to, not to mention three children in this right. case. And then Pablo, who's such a big guy, he's six foot five, which I think works so well for the part because, you know, he becomes this kind of gentle giant by the end, but he's done action roles recently. He's done kind of baddie roles. He's so good as a baddie. He's so interesting as a baddie. He really wanted to, I suppose, his, his more gentle side to be seen on screen and the opportunity to play a character who was so complex, who kind of had this dark side, but also had this tenderness was really appealing to him. And he's, you know, again, he's a dad himself, he has two boys. And I think he felt that he hadn't been able to show that side of him on screen. And so that, you know, that that really appealed to him, the, the possibility of, of doing that. And they both gave their all to the film. And I think you can see that. I mean, I, I think the fact that the characters feel so real is testament to how committed they were as actors. And I, I, I couldn't, I, I, hope, I owe them a huge debt. I owe them a huge debt for what they what they brought to this movie. No, absolutely. It's very clear that they just gave everything they could to those characters. So like you said, sometimes it's a bit of luck, sometimes it's just a meant to be type type scenario. So I'm glad that worked out for both of them for you to get this movie made because yeah, again, just fantastic performances. So, so yeah, that was great. Thank you. Now, as you'd mentioned before, this is your first feature film, although you have made several shorts leading up to the project. So what would you say is the biggest learning experience you took away from making this movie versus the shorts? Oh, well, I'm not sure I, it's a learning experience, but I think maybe it's about pacing yourself because the stamina involved in making a feature, especially an independent feature where you're kind of wearing so many different hats at the same time. Right. I mean, I'm not just writing and directing this. I, you know, I, even now that the film is finished and, you know, about to be distributed, even now, I, I, you know, I'm spending three or four hours a day doing Lorelei related stuff. And it's been like that for the last four years, you know, wow. with varying degrees of intensity and so the stamina involved in that and keeping yourself enthusiastic energized you know even on set I you know because it was an independent film and we were very scrappy and working with very limited resources and limited money and time I you know I'd be lucky to get four hours sleep on when while we were shooting and that went on for like six weeks every night wow. yeah so I think just personally figuring out how to pace myself and kind of not burn too bright at the beginning and sort of fade <laughs> out um right. I think if that's really important and I you know I think Part of that is having an, an amazing team that you can trust, that you can work with, that you know will take some, will bear some of that weight for you. And I, I'm, cer I certainly had a, you know, a number of really amazing collaborators on this who did a lot of the heavy lifting with me. But really, I would say, you know, a, a short film is like a, you know, five days and then it's over, four days and then it's over. This is a different beast, and. I think for anyone embarking on, you know, their first feature, I think just figure out how to pace yourself. It's a marathon, very much a marathon. Right. No, absolutely. Kind of the analogy of a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It really sounds like it applies to this situation. So Yeah. And you know what? COVID has made it even more drawn out, right? Because mm -hmm. we've had, you know, the kind of, I mean, we were due to premiere at Tribeca last year and with a few weeks to go till our world premiere, we were sort of in our final stages of doing the final sound mix, final color, and then everything ground to a halt because of COVID. We, we couldn't finish the film until the fall 
Our world premiere was cancelled at, at Tribeca and we ended up premiering at the Adjovel American Film Festival in France. So, but even that has kind of, I suppose, the, the bump, the boost that we would have had from a Tribeca premiere, the, you know, the buzz that we would have had from a Tribeca premiere in the film. I think having gone to Dover in France and seen it play in front of an audience and seen it play well in front of an audience, I was relieved and happy. And, and you know, it, it was a wonderful experience. And it made me think, you know, what if we'd screened at Tribeca? Uh, you know, you can't get too hung up on what ifs, but, but <laughs> right. I do think it's kind of, it has protracted the process of getting and drawn out the process of getting the film out into the world as well. You know, it, it is what it is. We, you know, I think many, many independent filmmakers I've spoken to are in a similar situation. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. The last year has just totally turned everything upside down and it's, we're really just living in a different world and you just have to look at, look at everything differently and take all the positives you can. So yeah, you're right. That's definitely would have had an impact. Sabrina, what is the number one thing about making this movie that makes you feel gratitude? Mm. I am, um, uh, the actors make me happy. Great performances make me happy. Um, mm. Actors bring so much of, I mean, you expose yourself a lot making as a director making a film, you expose yourself a lot as an actor as well. They, right. they put themselves out there. It's a very dangerous, a vulnerable thing that they do. I'm just always so grateful if it, if it works. And I think we haven't spoken about the three kid actors and discovering the three kid actors makes me happy. It makes me happy because I feel like, I, feel, I suppose there's a sort of satisfaction in introducing new talent to the world. These are kids who've never acted. The, the two younger kids, Amelia and Parker, have never acted before ever. Oh, wow. They're completely new to it. Amelia actually won a Best Actress Award at the Real Life Film Festival where you saw the film a few weeks ago, which is extraordinary. She was 10 and a half when she made this film. Her maturity and her <laughs> sophistication and just her raw instinct as an actress um, and as a human, I think really shines through and, is, and was rightly rewarded. And the other kids are extraordinary also. Chancellor, the older, kid who's 18 now so I can't call him a kid anymore <laughs> he's still a kid he's still a kid right. to me he he had done a little bit of acting he'd done some commercial work and some catalogue modelling and stuff like that but never anything dramatic like this so you know to all intents and purposes they've never acted before right. and I feel so proud that we found them and it took us many months to find them that we we helped them kind of feel comfortable on our set. You know, we, we took the time before shooting to kind of have little family gatherings together and really help them bond as a unit, as a sibling unit. And Jenna also kind of, you know, had the kids over to where she was staying and they all cooked dinner together. And they, you know, we really kind of took the time, you know, as much as we could in the, you know, within the limitations of an independent film, but we really took the time that we had to kind of bond before production began. And so that by the time we got the monster set they felt comfortable they felt you know they could play silly jokes with each other and they, they were already there as sort of a sibling <laughs> unit by the time we started shooting the film um, and I was so anxious about that going into it and I'm just really you know there are things we got right and things we got wrong but I, th I feel like we really got that right. No, I'm glad you brought up the kids in the context of gratitude because I feel that if those performances don't work, the movie doesn't work. Just for everything that they do within the story and the performances that they have to give, it's really a key to the film. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And I, I would expect that you had mentioned the one is technically an adult now, but they're always going to be your kids now, right? You're always <laughs> going to look at them in that respect. 
I'm gonna take credit for them. Um, yeah, when they, I mean, watch this space. They're so good, all of them. And, and you know, I mean, I, Pablo, I, a lot of the credit actually goes to Pablo and Jenna as well. They were, much of the reason why the kids are so great on screen is thanks to Pablo and Jenna, because they were the kids' scene partners, right? And so your scene partner is so key to helping you get to where you need to be in the scene. And Pablo and Jenna were so generous. You know, they didn't just look out for their own performances. They looked out for the kids' performances. I'll just give sort of two quick examples examples in the scene where um, Denim, the youngest kid, who is uh, a gender non-conforming child in the film and in real life actually, um, does not want to wear pants in the story. Their mum Dolores wants them to wear pants and they have a fight about it and Denim spits at Dolores, spits at their mother. Now that was a really hard scene for Parker to shoot because Parker, like all the kids, is just such a polite, lovely, well-behaved, well-raised child and that was really hard to sort of, to, to be that way towards an adult that they liked and respected. Mm. And Jenna gave them permission, she said, she turned it into a game. She said, spit harder. It's fine. Is that all the spit you got for me? And it was, she turned it into a game and <laughs> it, it allowed Parker to get to where they needed to be in the scene. And that was, and that was entirely down to Jenna, who was also a child actress, right? Like she started in this industry very right. young. So she totally got what the kids were going through and really sort of helped guide them through their experience of ever, you know, their first experience of being on a feature film. And then similarly, Pablo, you know, a scene that Chancellor, the actor who plays Dodger, was really worried about was the scene where he has to punch Wayland in okay. Face <laughs> at the end of the film, and that was really hard for him because, again, he he has a great deal of love and admiration and respect for Pablo, and to behave that way towards him felt counterintuitive. And Pablo really helped him. I mean, they were both in that scene. Even when Pablo, even when we were shooting Chancellor's coverage, Pablo was amped up at hundred percent because he knew that if he went there, Chancellor could get there. And he even for the bits where he was off screen, he went there for Chancellor to help Chancellor get to where he needed to be. Who's so just so generous as an actor and kind of and and then. Chancellor in turn did that for saw that Pablo did that I appreciated that generosity and sort of reciprocated and it was just really lovely to see that to see them sort of helping each other get to where they needed to be emotionally in the scene I mean acting is reacting right and so right. they gave each other something to react off Wow, that's amazing and just really, yeah. really inspiring, not just the performances, but extra work that they put in to help everyone else. That's incredible. Thank you for yeah. telling that story. Speaking of inspiring people, who in the filmmaking world would you say is your biggest number one inspiration? Oh, who is my biggest inspiration? I think of early trailblazers who were making films when women weren't making films, people like Agnes Varda, the late, great oh, yeah. Agnes Varda. And I think of all the people who are, I think, all the sort of the talents who haven't had a light shone on them yet, who are still struggling and hustling to get their stories told. I think there's so much talent out there. And I think that as an industry, we're sort of slowly awakening to the possibilities of harnessing that talent and letting that talent tell its own stories. And so I think of, I just know so many filmmakers who are on the cusp and who may or may not make it up into the light, but who are really hustling women and people of color and, I think of all those people who are my colleagues and they are inspiring to me because they're still trying and they're still hustling and they're still trying to get their stories heard. So, I mean, I think in the spirit of Lorelei, which is the spirit of looking to the future, I would say those people inspire me. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for bringing that up. And that, that's a perfect segue into my next couple questions here in, in terms of representation. So nice work there as well. <laughs> what would you say is the biggest opportunity for improvement when it comes to what's available for women in the industry right now? I think this is a tough one. I, I think we've made huge strides and I'm grateful. There is a long way to go 
One thing I've often found is that there are certain people who get judged on the basis of their potential, and then there are people who get judged on the basis of their achievements. And I think as a woman, you, you're never judged on your potential. You always have to prove yourself. And then the bar for proving yourself is often way higher. For myself, I feel like the question is, what have you done? What have you got? What have you got to show? What have you, and, and that it's a different, it's just, a, it feels like such a minor thing. It feels like such a subtle thing, but it's really important. It's really important yeah. because you're already, you're put on the back foot and you are, I mean, imposter syndrome is real. This is so difficult because it, it's, you're asking for a sort of very slight, a small difference that could make a big difference is I think just a slight shift and think, well, there's more than enough to go around. There's more than enough to go around. Why don't we right. share the pie a little bit more? <laughs> I think just a slight shift in attitude would make a massive, a massive amount of difference. It has to be about jobs. It has to be, it has to translate into real work and real opportunities. You know, I, I hear so many women say that they've been on so many panels about representation. <laughs> they want to sort of tear their hair out and it's true you know I mean, a panel a panel does not make you know a job and a sort of shadowing opportunity is great but you know let's turn those into jobs as well so okay. you know I, th I think I, I have to speak from personal experience and say it's hard because of my gender and because of my class background even though my class background is very much mitigated by the fact that I went to, to Cambridge University I worked at the BBC it's sort of so it is mitigated by that but there is a kind of there's a sort of economic aspect to all of this you know it's a big investment in you know financial and emotional investment to build a career in this industry there's a lot of unpaid work that goes into building a career in this industry and not everyone can afford to invest that time so it's a very there's no easy answer but I I am grateful for the gains made and I'm grateful because I do see that the tide is maybe starting to turn you're absolutely right. These are never the easiest conversations, but I think that's also the reason why it's so important to have them. It's very important not just to have the conversations because people actually need to do something about it and take action. So what, what do you see out there in the industry that then gives you hope that things can shift in the direction that we want? I have a list on my phone of movies that I would give awards to this year. <laughs> my list, let me pull it up. All right. I have, and this is my, this is a very provisional list, right? Um, <laughs> I, and I'm still watching movies and I'm still watching all the sort of awards movies. But sure. I mean, just to give you an indication, um, best film, Small Axe. I mean, it's five films, but okay. Uh, best director, I mean, Steve McQueen. Best actress, Viola Davis. Best original screenplay, Rada Blank, the 40-year-old version. Mm. Best adapted screenplay, Kent Powers, One Night in Miami. I mean, that just gives you a, right? Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. The best film, the best films of this year have diverse voices. The fact that I can write a list like that and that those films are all contenders, right. I think is incredible, yeah. Speaking of great movies, I want to come back to your movie for the couple last questions here. Another thing I really love about the movie is that you weren't afraid to dig into some serious mental health issues. And you also take a good hard look at how people so easily judge other people for things they've gone through or decisions they've made. Was that part of why you wanted to tell this story? Or were those specifically, again, specifically talking about mental health, were those topics something that grew out of the writing process? It grew out of the writing process and it grew specifically from, I think, something we touched on earlier, which was wanting to, particularly with my female characters, just show complexity and show the dark times, the difficult times, the rock bottom times and the good and bad decisions that flow from that and not have the character 
be any less deserving because of those moments. And I think that, you know, it's funny, I expected to hear this, but so many, but when I was writing the screenplay and I'd show it to people, this was before Jenna was in the role. And I think Jenna in the role is just such a force of nature, such a hurricane, such a whirlwind that you just, you get swept up in her and you don't question it anymore. But at screenplay level, I would get people saying to me, I don't like Dolores, she leaves her kids, you know? I don't think that's a good decision. It doesn't make sense to me. It, a lot of women, I mean, I'd like to say a lot of men, but also a lot of women said that to me as well. Good. And, and wow. yeah, yeah, I didn't change the screenplay. I thought that that was important. I thought it was important that she have that sort of breakdown right. and need to kind of just get away from it all. And why wouldn't she have a breakdown? I mean, you know, I mean, right. I think she's confronted with, you know, she has her high school sweetheart back and that's kind of, but, but in coming back, he's reminded her of maybe when she was a different person and had a, a bigger scale of ambition for her life. And I think that that, kind of triggers a crisis in her you know she remembers right. what it was she originally wanted and it's very different to what she has now and I think him coming back triggers you know makes her connect with the part of herself that she had left behind and becoming a mother and working these jobs to raise her family and sort of struggling with bills and stuff so I, you know I went ahead and and I, I think you know thank Jenna is so magnetic on screen that you, you I think you don't question it as much right. in the real finalized version of the film but certainly at screenplay level I had questions about it and people saying they it made them dislike the character yeah yeah I'm, I'm glad you were able to stick to keeping that type of stuff in there i think it really created a more effective uh story because if you did make some changes that people were saying i don't like this or i don't like that i mean how does the story end at that point it's not as rewarding of a finale and how things end up for them in those final scenes i think that's where you get the payoff is because of what they go through to get there so thank you for not listening to other people that wanted you to take stuff like that out so i, I think it's very important that all of that was left in there, so good job. Is there anything else you want to add about the film itself that we haven't covered before we wrap up? My goodness, I would like people to see the film. It's hard enough in normal times to get an independent film out there. It has been especially hard this year independent filmmakers who've invested years of their lives in their films, releasing their films or trying to get distribution for their films at a time when the industry is very jittery and very risk averse and are battening down the hatches. New voices and new perspectives find it hard to get in at the best of times, but this year has been particularly hard. It would just mean so much if people would support independent filmmakers and watch our films, get the word out. If you like the film, say nice things about it, give it a good review. <laughs> All that stuff really helps, that groundswell, that sort of grassroots effort really helps. And our film's going to be coming out. We're about to, I think, announce our US North American distribution deal and our film will be coming out later this year. But in oh, the nice. build up to that, just, yeah, I mean, I feel grateful. But in the build up to that, just getting as much word of mouth out as possible means the world to us. If the film touches you and moves you in some way, and I, you know, I think that independent film is in so many ways, the lifeblood of cinema, right? Like you, you have the freedom in it as an independent filmmaker to experiment, to try stuff that other, that, you know, that in a more sort of, where there's more money at stake, you might not be able or allowed to experiment with, right? So I think a lot of new talent is found via independent film, a lot of new ideas. You know, it's, it's a sort of gestation laboratory for so many different new things. And I right. think to keep film healthy, you need to keep independent film healthy. And right. so any, if people can kind of offer their support and help keep independent film alive and thriving during this difficult period, that would just mean the world, yeah. Sabrina Doyle, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I hope everyone gets a chance to see Lorelei and I wish you all the best in the future. 
thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for being here. This is the Changing Directions podcast series presented by 206.com. Changing Directions is a podcast interview series focused on diverse and emerging filmmakers who are pushing the boundaries of what's possible for women and minorities while creating amazing films. Please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share on social media. Any way you can support the podcast is very much appreciated. You can find every podcast episode and all of my movie reviews, including my review of Sabrina Doyle's movie Lorelei, on 206.com. Thank you for listening to the Changing Directions podcast series presented by 206.com.